Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Welcome, welcome to episode 19. I um, can't believe that I've made 19 of these episodes so far. It's pretty amazing. And I just want to thank you guys for being here uh, to listen to all of us and supporting it and sending in your requests and questions and things like that. I'm so, so grateful. Um, Today, you guys, I'm so happy to have Dr. Allison Rogers on the show um, to talk about all things sperm. So Look, I'll be real. I know nothing about sperm or sperm quality or whatever can go wrong with sperm. I've spent like the last four years focused on my eggs and egg quality. But after seeing this post by Infertility Man, I just kind of really started thinking about it. And since sperm is really half the equation, I just really wanted to talk more about it. And I know that some of you are struggling with sperm quality. So um, this is definitely a topic I wanted to cover. And um, we will also go deeper um, into the topic in a future episode. I'm going to have a reproductive productive urologist um, on the show so we can dig deeper into all things um, that can happen with sperm and then maybe even some procedures um, that we can kind of go into. We talk about that a little bit in this episode too, but we can dig a little deeper when we talk to reproductive urologists um, about it. So um, knowing that I don't know a lot about sperm, I want to ask for your forgiveness for this you know, all these rudimentary questions that uh, you may already know the answers to. And if you don't, hooray, then we both learn together. But if you already do, then you may want to just skip to the end uh, where some of the questions come up if you submitted a question. But if you're here and you don't know much about sperm and you want to learn more about sperm and sperm quality and how that it can affect how that can affect your um, IVF success, then certainly stay tuned. Um, So Dr. Allison Rogers is a reproductive endocrinologist. She's based out of Illinois, and she's amazing. Um, I first started following her because I saw these great videos that she did um, on sperm every Monday. She has this like little video of a microscope and the sperm under a microscope, and she kind of um, narrates what she thinks is good about the sperm or what bad sperm looks like or what a good sample looks like or a bad sample looks like. And it's actually really cool. So if you haven't seen this yet, or if you haven't caught this on her Instagram, head over to her Instagram and watch them. Um, She does them every Monday. She also does this really cool thing that we'll talk about during the show as well. Um, A thing with her daughter where she kind of asks a lot of the common questions, Um, uh, you know, that maybe... Um, well, women in general, but even um, younger women um, in their teens that may be dealing with, you know, different changes to their body. Honestly, these are the things like I wish that I had heard when I was her daughter's age. And I think having that information out there and helping these younger girls kind of understand their bodies and knowing what's normal about their bodies um, can be really helpful longer term. I think that's what a lot of us older folks are kind of missing is that we um, just don't know enough about our bodies. And so I thought this was a really nice way to kind of introduce this to a younger generation. So if you haven't seen those, check those out too. They actually ask some really, really good questions. And some of them I know for me when I was younger, I was just 
probably too afraid to ask, but they, they do a really good job of covering it. So um, take a listen and watch if you haven't. Um, and I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Um, there are some really, really lovely, amazing doctors out there who have offered me their time to do these episodes without hesitation. Like Dr. Rogers, when I reached out to her, it was like not even a question. She was like, yeah, sure. I'd love to do it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like I'm like nobody, you know what I mean? And the fact that I think like so many of these um, doctors are just so open to having this discussion and to teaching us just really speaks to how much they care about their work. And, um, you know, I think it's just like a testament to them as people and as doctors. And, you know, there are really, really amazing doctors out there. Um, you definitely can find one. Um, and fortunately, I've met a lot of them um, for this podcast. And I'm so, so grateful. Um, I mean, they're super busy. And they've given me one to one and a half hours to like, talk about stuff, these concerns that we have. And it's just so touching. I'm so grateful. And they just, I think it really shows how much they want us all to succeed. And that's just so, so meaningful to me. So I just want to give a special thank you to uh, Dr. Amy Avazadeh, the Egg Whisperer, Dr. Zahir Murhi, um, Dr. Allison Rogers, Dr. Samuel Olander, Dr. Rahu Victory, Dr. Tia Jackson Bay. Um, all of you guys have been so, so wonderful. And I also want to thank, we've had some other experts on the show as well. Dr. Wiata Fanbule, Dr. Jenna Hua, Dr. Mimi Lee, Rishan Charney, which is an episode coming up uh, soon, um, Sarah Kowalski, Sherry Johnson, and then all the warriors too that have been opening up and sharing their really wonderful stories here, their experience, their struggle, their success, um, all, every single one of you that have been on here, I'm sorry if I've forgotten you, but every single one of you have made such a big difference for all of us going through um, this experience. So I want to thank you all for doing this. Um, Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for taking time to be with us to, here today and to share your knowledge with us. And thank you so much for introducing me to Dr. Olander, uh, who I will have on the show. He's our reproductive urologist um, who will be on the show very, very soon. So I'm super excited about that. So thank you so much for being so wonderful and um, really helping us all try to learn better and helping us all succeed. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, if you guys found value you in this episode. I would love, love, love if you left me a five-star review or written review just to help get this stuff out to more people. So more people who are struggling with fertility um, or who maybe can prevent um, some of the struggles we've gone through. If we can just get more of this out there, um, then, you know, hopefully it'll be less taboo um, over time. Okay, guys, you know, I love to talk. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician, and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique, and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hi! 
and this is another episode of the 40 and Fertile podcast, and I am so excited to have Dr. Allison Rogers on with me today. Um, thank you so much for making time uh, to be here for us, uh, Dr. Rogers. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> I um I first kind of found you. I think one of the first things I saw um on I think it was your Instagram. I don't I don't think it was TikTok. I think it was actually Instagram was all these sperm videos you would do. I think it was like I think it's on Mondays. Is it on Mondays? Yes. Yes, yes. because on Mondays I'm in the operating room in my IVF center and so I sort of go over and look at the you know microscope and check out sperm samples and so it just became sperm Mondays cuz that's the day that I was doing it. Yes. So I was like, and I thought it was so informative, like these seeing these videos and you very um, well point out like which ones, why this is a good sample, why it's a bad sample. And um, I was like, well, you know, I feel like we should talk about sperm because I don't feel like often enough we talk about sperm and it is 50% of um, the issue 50% of the time. So um, I thought it was super important to talk about. So thank you so much for being here to talk about that. My pleasure. Absolutely. (laughs) And I actually love, love, love the videos you do with Lily, right? Oh, thank you. Yes. So, you know, obviously I'm a OBGYN and fertility specialist and sort of mainly was on Instagram for fertility education and then um, started doing TikTok originally, like very early before the pandemic. In fact, uh, like the January of 2020 started doing TikTok to create videos for Instagram, but then realized there's this whole amazing community on Instagram or on TikTok, excuse me. And, um, you know, my daughter's friends used to come over and ask me all these questions about puberty and periods. And I, I just thought to myself, there are so many Uh, teens and young women, young people out there who just don't know enough about their, don't, haven't been taught properly about what's going on with their bodies, how to take care of themselves. And I think that also there's so much misinformation. Exactly one of your missions of this podcast is trying to get accurate information out there. And so we sort of started doing it and then it kind of exploded. So um, people really, I think it really resonates with people. And, you know, I think she um, embraces my uh, quirky and cringy <laughs> and um, sense of humor sometimes. Um so, but uh, yes, I think that she's just fantastic for being, she's 15 now. We've been doing it for, you know, almost three, two and a half years or so. And uh, for her to be able to be so young and see that there's such value in educating people about health is great. Well, and I think these are really good, particularly in her age group. These are really great questions and, <clears throat> excuse me, conversations to have because um, I, I wish I heard these things like I'm 41 and I still know nothing about my menstrual cycle and what is normal. And like, and I don't know if you encounter that with your patients, but I feel like that even for us in our forties, we're like, what is normal? Because we never talked about it. And so I think it's so wonderful that you're doing that with your daughter and that, well, yeah. And I found that, that a lot of, I like originally was doing a lot of these videos for the, you know, maybe teens and early twenties demographic. And then so many of my thirties and 40 year old patients have been like, wow, I didn't know that about my body. I'm so glad I learned that. Yeah. (laughs) So it really resonates with all 
all people, I think. Yeah. So I think both you and Lily are teaching like women everywhere, people with uteruses everywhere. Like because I like I still am figuring out this whole menstrual cycle thing, and I'm like it's gonna go away soon. But at the same point in time, like it it'd be nice to know. So I think it's so wonderful, and I I love the topics that you guys talk about too. It's it's almost like there's no there's nothing holding you back and I love that I think that's really great too that she can feel comfortable in speaking to you and asking these questions and talking about these topics well there may be a small cringe factor but I think overall yeah every once in a while there's something I I say hey let's talk about this and she's like "Mm, no (laughs) so she definitely does but you can see that we talk about most things yes yes and I think she still has to show her face at school (laughs) (laughs) yes yes I know she's like before she's like tiktok famous I guess she should she has things to think about so I'm like right good thought but yeah so if you guys have not seen these videos or have not um, heard um, about some of these things, the Sperm Mondays and um, her TikTok videos with Lily, um, really, really check it out. It's really amazing. Um, but I, I know I kind of veered off topic, but I just thought that was so wonderful and I wanted oh, to bring attention you. to that. So thank you so much for doing that. And then um, today we're actually here to talk about sperm because I feel like it's so important to talk about sperm. I don't know much about sperm, so you'll have to forgive me. I have some questions about it. Um, but first, I kind of want to just talk a little bit about you. How did you get into the fertility space? What drove you to come into fertility? So... You know, I went to medical school and then decided that I really liked fertility while I was in medical school. So when I was looking for an OBGYN residency, because to become a reproductive endocrinologist, you have to do a four year uh, OBGYN residency and become board certified in OBGYN as well. um, I definitely was like looking for programs that had fellowships, looking for you know, programs that could give me the research needed uh, to be able to qualify for a fellowship. So, um, and then, you know, obviously went on, it's actually really, really competitive to be able to Mm. get into a fellowship. Um, Things are maybe a little different now, but when I applied, there's like, I don't know, maybe 150 or 200 people applying for 25 to 30 spots. So it was really a competitive field. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so then obviously did my fellowship. It's a three-year fellowship, which is usually 50% clinical and 50% research. So completed that at the University of Texas. And then um, I graduated in 2011. And so I've been out for 11 years, um, help, you know, as an attending, helping people make babies uh, and all the exciting stuff. Yeah, well, thanks for choosing this field because obviously you're making a huge impact. <laughs> like whether you intended to make TikToks when you were graduated or not, you're making a, a you're making waves. Well, I um, I'll tell you that I feel such um, honor and gratitude to be able to help my patients through this really difficult journey. And you know, one of the things you may not know about me is that after I was a fertility fellow and I had my first daughter, Lily, who you all know, uh, without any issues trying to get pregnant, then I struggled with secondary infertility uh, and went through the whole gamut of treatment, including inseminations, IVF, frozen transfers, uh, lost several pregnancies. And mm. it was almost ironic that I here became a fertility doctor 
doctor and then couldn't get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, like many of the people listening and hopefully you too, um, you know, uh, grit and perseverance paid off. And, mm-hmm. you know, certainly now I have the family I want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly wasn't without uh, a lot of sweat, blo- sweat yeah. blood and tears, you know, yeah. and progesterone and oil shots. Yeah, <laughs> which is about the same. Those are like right. it's synonymous. Um, but no, I think it gives you a wonderful insight into your patient's experience. So I think you having gone through that probably gives you an, another level of um, support that you can provide them because you know emotionally what it's like to go through it, it, particularly with recurrent pregnancy loss. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Unfortunately. Yeah, well, a large part of my audience is... 35 and over, and um, a a large part of um, the listeners are kind of more towards the 40 and over. So as far as sperm goes, what happens to sperm as we age? It's not like ovaries. It doesn't happen as quickly, right? Right. Yeah. So when we think about sort of sperm quality and the ability for sperm to create a healthy baby, it's not like eggs where, you know, that decline starts happening probably at a more steady pace for women or people with ovaries around 38. uh, And most ovaries lose function to create a healthy egg somewhere around 42, 43, 44. Um, For people with sperm, that is, you know, they can make sperm their whole life until the day they die. Um, The quality does does decline typically throughout age. We think about genetic disorders in people with ovaries and eggs of things like aneuploidy, extra chromosomes, missing chromosomes, ideally like things like Down syndrome, we think about trisomy 21. In, in sperm, it's really different. Um, so we don't see extra chromosomes or missing chromosomes because sperm are constantly being made. So it's not quite the same thing as an egg sitting in our ovary mm-hmm. for 40 something years. Um, but what we see is increase in um, autosomal dominant disorders, things, the one we think about is something called achondroplasia, which is a form of autosomal dominant um Uh, dwarfism, uh, where the long bones in your body are very short. um, And this is, you know, something that is increased risk. Now, it's still very low risk. um, But we think about sort of sperm quality in terms of being able to make healthy babies dropping. But then we also think about sperm quality in terms of just like having sperm, good quality sperm in terms of numbers. You know, there's three main things we look at when we look at sperm is sort of the count, um, the motility, how many are moving, and morphology, how many have normal shapes, and any medical conditions that people who have sperm pick up throughout their life so can affect sperm quality. Any medicines they're taking can affect sperm quality. So we think about as we get older, right, we tend to maybe be heavier. We tend to maybe have... um, more incidence of diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol problems, other, even like things like gout, you know, like things that we don't think of. Some of the medications that we use to treat that or the disorders themselves that affect your general health can affect your function of producing sperm. Um, and then certainly um, hormone imbalances like low testosterone. We, we hear a lot about low testosterone, you know, guys getting older and having less uh, sexual function, have difficulty with erections and ejaculation. Um, this may indicate sort of a low testosterone level. The problem is, is that these guys will then go to their primary care and, or maybe even a urologist that doesn't know anything about fertility and they are given testosterone and the testosterone more or less acts like a, you know, a male birth control that kills all of the sperm. 
it's really because it shuts down the production of sperm in the testicles. So um, we just have to be really careful about which medications we use to help with that. And then we think about lifestyle things. So, you know, the usual things we think about in terms of you know, caffeine, nicotine, marijuana, um, excessive alcohol, those are things that certainly can affect as, as well as certain jobs. You know, you, I have uh, certainly a lot of patients who have jobs maybe on a factory or they're exposed to chemicals. And these are people who may have issues with, with sperm quality. Mm-hmm. Are there any like... Um... I know you mentioned some causes. It could be, you know, lifestyle changes or medications you've taken. But are there any other um, common male factor infertility conditions that people should know about? Um, Yes, that's a great question. So I think that we think about hormone imbalances. So certainly male hormones like testosterone, but other hormone imbalances, um, certainly things like diabetes, which of course is a hormone imbalance, endocrine disorder. We think about prolactin and thyroid. Those kind of disorders can affect uh, sexual function and and hormonal hormonal function. Uh, We think about actually one of the most common things we see is something called a varicocele, which is actually a varicose vein in the scrotum. And what happens is that the the testicles work best when they're a little below body temperature. And so that's why the testicles are outside the body. And anybody with testicles knows, and maybe lots of people without testicles know, that when they get cold, the testicles kind of come up to closer to the body to get a little warmer. And when, they're, when somebody is hot, the testicles lower to get further away from body heat. They function best, which is why they're outside the body, at a little cooler temperature. So if you have a varicose vein pumping a lot of extra you know, blood to the testicles, it heats up the testicles and it creates abnormal sperm production. Um, And this is something that we see pretty commonly when we're looking for, um, you know, male factor issues. And, you know, it's a little controversial, like, you know, the, the treatment is surgery. And so the question really is like, who needs surgery and who doesn't? Does sometimes fixing a varicocele surgically um, might not improve the sperm count, but it may help it not get worse. Um, and then the, you know, the last thing we think about is genetics. There's certainly some genetic disorders that will lead to issues with either poor sperm or no sperm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, half, well, most of the time I feel like, um, we look at the women as, um, as majority of the issue with fertility like you know our egg quality we check our amh and we're checking the number of follicles we have and that sort of thing um and then the men um or you know the people with sperm get um a sperm analysis but at what point do we have to look at the sperm itself as a factor uh, as as the problem um if someone's having trouble conceiving Well, I think, you know, it's really recommended by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine that when someone gets a fertility evaluation, that right up front, uh, the partner producing the sperm gets evaluated right up front because we do see about 40% of the time uh, it's a it's a problem. uh, And half of that. So like 20% of the total time, that's the only issue. Um, And. So it's really important to do a semen analysis to figure that out. Um, Obviously, we're looking for sperm numbers, sperm quality. 
you know, but sometimes there's some more subtle things going on, right? So sometimes the sperm are having a hard time getting into the egg. And because everything's happening in the body, we can't tell exactly when that's happening unless we're doing IVF. Um, but certainly sometimes the sperm are having a hard time getting in because there's an issue with the egg. But certainly sometimes the sperm are having a hard time getting in because there's an issue with the sperm. And so um, I think it's something to sort of keep on our radar, even though there may not be like great tests for that. Mm -hmm. And what is a DNA fragmentation test? Yeah, so not everybody needs this test and certainly not everybody with abnormal sperm needs this test. Um, but it is a test that looks to see how sort of neat and wound the DNA inside the sperm head is. So I think about like a nice like spool of thread, how it's like in this nice little spool. And then it, you can imagine a situation where you took like yarn and just make a, made a ball out of it, like, like a messy ball, you know? So the question is, is the DNA wrapped up like the neat spool or is it like a messy ball? And that's what that DNA fragmentation testing is looking for, you know, or, is to see sort of if there might be other issues with the sperm that were not like just seeing under the microscope. Um, and I will, I don't do this on everybody, but I will recommend this um, for people who maybe have with mainly with IVF, have some unexplained uh, failed fertilization or unexplained uh, blastulization. So, you know, maybe they have eggs and there's eggs that are mature and eggs that fertilize to create embryos, but then those embryos don't move to blastocyst. And the question is, is that an egg issue or a sperm issue? And sometimes the DNA fragmentation can help us try to figure that out. And if there is very high DNA fragmentation, uh, sometimes we can get better quality sperm directly from the testicles. So we can, one of my reproductive urology colleagues can take a, a small sample of sperm from the testicles themselves, and sometimes we get better quality from doing that. Certainly there's always the option of using donor sperm as well in those situations. So is that, do you decide that when you've gotten too many samples where under the microscope they all just don't look really great and then you say well, not even actually oh, okay. it's more like i really only do it when somebody's gone through typically one or more ivf cycles where something looks like dramatically wrong because theoretically if even if people have really horrible sperm like very very few very few looking good even sperm with none moving as long as they're alive with ivf with ICSI, where we inject the sperm right in that's the treatment, right? Like they should do well with that. And so it's only when we get unexpected findings of injecting sperm in and not having the, the expected outcome of fertilization or blastulization that we start looking for other causes. Okay. Um, in your patients like 35 to you know, for 35 and over, I, I guess, um, what do you see as the more common sperm issues? Well, you know, it is obviously I, I take care of a lot of patients that have a variety of issues. Um, I do think lifestyle is one I see a lot, um, you know, um, and certainly things like obesity. Um, I, I live in Illinois where marijuana is legal. So we think about, you know, excessive alcohol, marijuana, those kind of lifestyle things. But, I, you know, I think I, I, I don't know if there's sort of just one main thing. I think there is a lot of um, a variety of different things that can be going on, which is why you really need a fertility specialist that can 
you know, think outside the box and be thoughtful about all of the pieces of the puzzle that you need to help get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, is the sperm analysis the best way to look at the sperm? Because it's not like there's like a sperm AMH or something, you know. Uh, so like, is there is that like the best way to evaluate the sperm? Yeah, absolutely. And remember, a semen analysis doesn't tell us if you can get pregnant naturally, you know, with intercourse or not. Right. A semen analysis is literally just telling us if there's sperm, if there's moving, if they look normally shaped under the microscope. And so sometimes people with very, very poor sperm can, can you know, have help somebody conceive naturally, you know, with intercourse. And then certainly there are people who have very good quality sperm that the sperm are dysfunctional. And even though they look pretty under a microscope, they may not do the job of getting into the egg. And so I think that these are all things that like we are using it as a surrogate marker of, you know, is there sperm? It's not if it works, it's not, is it going to, you know, is there's no like magic number that you need this number to get pregnant. Like, you know, obviously we have ideal ranges that we like to see, right? But I think we just need to realize that it it's not similar to AMH for that matter. It's not a true test of can you get pregnant or can you get somebody pregnant if you have sperm? It's more of a marker of our literally are their sperm. So it's a little bit of a subtle distinction. In the sperm analysis, do you find that there's any particular marker within the sperm analysis that's more important than another? You know, when they look at morphology yeah. or, yeah. I, th- I think the two main things that are most important, um, well, I think the number one thing that I look at is a, is a uh, value called the total modal count. So it's the volume times the concentration times the motility percent. And it gives us a number of how many moving sperm are in the ejaculate. I think that is probably the most important number out there to um, be able to um, look at to sort of see how many modal sperm there are. Okay. Um, so, sometimes I think about, or at least I'm, I'm trying to compare this to maybe um, when we have an issue with the ovaries, like let's say um, someone were to undergo cancer treatment then you know or uh, discover that they have cancer um, hopefully someone has talked to them and said you know hey maybe think about freezing your eggs before undergoing radiation or chemotherapy or something like that um, do you know if that's happening for uh, the male side or oh, people yeah. with sperm oh, okay oh yeah absolutely um, and I um <laughs> I used to, as a fellow, I used to talk to the guys all the time and do a consultation session with them when they were freezing sperm. Certainly frozen sperm doesn't, you know, for example, doesn't increase risk of birth defects. It can stay stored for as long as they need. So I would do this whole, you know, consult with them. And I, um, you know, and it's really important for fertility preservation uh, for uh, people with eggs that are not done reproducing. And then also certainly people with sperm, it's certainly faster and easier for people with sperm. You can just ejaculate in a cup and they can freeze it as opposed to people with eggs who need to go through, you know, 10 days of hormone treatment and a retrieval and the whole thing. But, um, but yes, absolutely. And that's a really good point it is so important to do fertility preservation. Yeah. Because after say something like chemotherapy or radiation, does that prevent them from having normal sperm ever? It depends. 
Um, it depends on exactly what chemotherapy. It's more chemo than radiation, but um, it depends on exactly what medications were used and what doses. Um, so it's very variable. Um, the other thing we see is um, men who've had vasectomies. Uh, and they can often have a vasectomy reversal where we sort of reconnect the tubes. But if the vasectomy has been a long time, they have a high chance of having what we call anti-sperm antibodies, where the body is sort of attacking the sperm and and those sperm that have antibodies all over it have a very hard time getting into an egg. So a lot of times we need to do IVF in those situations as well. Um, interestingly, if there is fertility coverage from an insurance perspective, typically uh, elective sterilization uh, on either the male or female side, elective sterilization, um, usually, not always, but usually um, is an excluding factor for insurance coverage. So that, which is really hard because then patients are paying out of pocket. Right, 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 right. So I guess in that case, it I guess most of the time when people have vasectomies, they at the time are like, I'm I'm done. I don't, you know, I don't want to have any more children. Cause I was like trying to think, well, would there be a reason or could they, you know, freeze their sperm and store it in the event one day they may change their mind? But I don't know that that's a good plan either. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know what I see a lot of times is people who had a family we're done having kids and then maybe, you know, got divorced and have a new partner and the new partner wants kids. So it's usually like a, a change in life, like a, a, you know, life status or, you know, relationship status or something that uh, sort of leads to that situation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I was trying to think like, is there a way, but I don't think that there's a good way <laughs> to solve that problem. So <laughs> I, I, unlike you, I'm not able to change the world yet. So <laughs> I think you are. Don't you think you are? This podcast oh is fantastic. Gosh. I know. I, I hope so. I'm, I'm working my way through it. <laughs> Um, as far as, so like as women, I, I am on like a thousand supplements. I feel like, I feel like I'm just taking like every supplement under the sun comes like, like if it'll help, I'll just take it, you know, um, for men, are there supplements that they can take to enhance their sperm or enhance their yeah. fertility? So a lot of times I'll recommend, uh, just a general multivitamin that has a lot of the micronutrients that are really good for sperm. So vitamin C, zinc, those kind of things. And then the, the other one that's really good is CoQ10. Uh, the dose for men is typically, um, 400 milligrams and that can be found easily over the counter at literally any pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have, um, my um, acupuncturist recommends a couple of things. She says selenium, zinc, L-carnitine. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, those are all great. And that's where sort of a multi, a gen, just general men's multivitamin has a lot of those things oh, in okay. it as well. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and you had mentioned earlier about um, urologists, but not all urologists are created equal when it comes to fertility. Is that right? Yeah, certainly. So um, there are some fellowship programs for reproductive urology or sometimes, you know, people will call themselves andrologist uh, urologists. Um, there are some fellowships out there. And certainly, as I live in Chicago, there are several to choose from uh, fertility uh, fellowship trained uh, reproductive urologists, which are really great partners for us as reproductive endocrinologists to have. Um, not all places in the country or world have have such special subspecialists. And so some urologists will take a 
you know, uh, interest in fertility and usually like a big group of, you know, urologists, maybe one or two people in the group will sort of see all the fertility patients and know what they're doing there. But I certainly have seen some, um, you know, some regular urologists can do a really good job if they know what they're doing and have an interest, but not all urologists know what they're doing from a fertility perspective. It's something that's not super well trained in fellow in most uh, residency programs. Mm-hmm. So how do you if, you know, someone's in the part of the country who maybe needs a urologist? Um, I guess, number one, how do you know that you need a urologist? And number two, how do you know the urologist you're working with is the right one who can help with your fertility? That's a great question. I think that I would certainly try to seek out if there is a, you know, fellowship trained reproductive urologist in your area. If not, um, you can sort of ask if there is or sometimes you can see on their websites, they'll sort of say what their interests are and if they list sort of infertility or male infertility. And the other thing is to start with the female fertility doctor, you know, the reproductive endocrinologist and then see who they like and who they work with and see if they think you need a, a consultation. Um, I think most people will start with the with our, you know, the our side and then get referred to the male side if needed, because a lot of, you know, the treatment we need, if there's low sperm counts or, you know, poor sperm quality, you know, inseminations or IVF, you take care of most of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are there um, any struggles or. Um, things that you find most difficult? Because I think, you know, like I said, I feel like in large part we talk about the female side a lot more. Do you think for the males, are there any struggles you see commonly with people who have male factor infertility that maybe isn't talked about? Like, Yeah, you know, I think that there is a lot of shame. And, you know, I think a lot of guys aren't maybe in in touch maybe with their emotions or or they don't want to appear or seem vulnerable but there is a lot of emotions tied up in especially when men have difficulty with uh, sexual function and then a lot of the guys especially guys with no sperm or very very low sperm counts um emotionally it's very difficult for them um they sort of feel all those same things that that uh, our typical fertility female patients will feel in terms of feeling like they've let their partner down feeling like a failure feeling like there might not be a real man or you know i think that there's a lot of emotion there that we need to really support and protect our patients um during that processing time where they're trying to figure out what their next steps look like yeah I, I just wanted to bring attention to that because I feel like you know in case there are people out there who maybe are struggling and don't find that because you know I, I really don't think that we talk about the male factor part very often and I think because there's a lot of shame tied to it too you know it's like oh you know if, if there's something wrong with my sperm then there's something wrong with me as you know a man like you said and you know I I just think it's important for us to say, hey, you know, we get it. It's tough and it's okay to talk about it and you will you can find support and you can get help and it's okay to get some emotional help through this process because it's not easy for anybody. Like Yeah, and that's why sort of a practice like mine, like we have a social worker and psychologist on our team to really help uh, support our patients through this difficult process. And I think that whether your fertility clinic does or does not have anyone on staff, there are certainly specialists that are there to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have um, some questions from um, 
followers and listeners. Would you mind if we kind of went over those now? Yeah, let's okay. do it. <laughs> uh, let's see. The first question is um, indications of 0.5% morphology when all other values are normal. I think this is asking about the etiology Core maybe. Morphology. Yeah. So morphology is one of those sort of controversial topics, like how important is morphology? And theoretically, I sort of think about it like only the normally shaped sperm can get into the egg. Um, we use really strict morphology standards. So like it's normal to have 4% having normal mm-hmm. shakes. So, yeah. right? like, um, and there's a little bit of controversy about sort of treatment strategies. And, you know, I think that if somebody had that low morphology, the question is, is do they have a varicocele causing it? Is there any life style changes that they can um, change to improve sperm quality. And, you know, I think that those are, that's a great scenario where, you know, depending on the female partner's um, prognosis, you know, moving to IUI or IVF would be a good, good idea. And would something like, and forgive me, I don't know much about this, but would something like a, like a Pixie or Zymot or something like that help or not really? Well, so you don't, you know, for 0.5 morphology, you don't even need that actually for regular IVF because like, let's just say the, the, the we get 10 eggs. We need 10 sperm, not 10 million. So, you know, Pixie and Zymot are great. And I utilize those myself for severe cases and stuff. But that, I mean, just regular old, ICSI, uh, you know, it should be perfect for that kind of case. Um, and can we, because, you know, I like to go off topic a little bit. <laughs> can we talk really quick about Pixie and Zymot, what, what that sure. is and what the difference is? Different sperm processing technology. The what Pixie is, is you sort of different technology to identify sperm to inject into the egg is sort of the best way to think about that. Um you know, Zymot is a uh, device that we use to sell, sort of prepare the sperm uh, before selecting them. Uh, one of the hard parts is, and you sort of uh, put the sperm through this filter um, to like figure out which ones are moving the best and that kind of stuff. And the hard part is you need a certain, for Zymot, you need a certain um, quality of sperm. And a lot of guys with really poor sperm just don't have enough to be able to do that. Um, so, but I, you know, I think that even with very, very poor sperm quality, that's where IVF with ICSI is, that's the treatment usually, right? You know, and I think that, you know, when we look at things like Pixie and Zymot, we do them uh, and I do them, but um, there's not a lot of science showing that they're super helpful. So I think we just have to keep that in mind. Um, We do it and I do it more for cases where, you know, maybe there was really unexpected failed fertilization or something that, we're not expecting to see that we see sort of um, that once we even inject sperm, good looking sperm into the egg, they still aren't doing their job. That is more where I'll use some of these other sort of Hail Mary techniques uh, as opposed to like a ton of research saying they're the best. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if your clinic doesn't offer Pixie or Zymot, that's okay. Like most, like 99.9% of people who are doing IVF should be just fine with regular ICSI. Okay. Um, Pentox versus theophylline to quote unquote wake up sperm. So I, I ideally like neither one of those are are the you know super great. What the idea is between they're sort of like um uh, almost like a caffeine a cousin of caffeine a little bit, and you put them in with the sperm to if they're not moving to try to figure out which sperm are alive and which sperm are dead, and so 
like theoretically neither one are great they are all a little bit toxic but you know i would say whatever your urologist feels comfortable with and um there's probably not a huge difference between them i think the biggest thing is um that you know if you're at a point where your clinic is thinking your lab thinks you need to use that then certainly sperm quality is a big issue um the next question is how do they check for sperm dna fragmentation i think it's asking like the process for it yeah um so it's a process where they they get a sperm sample and they're able to um, do a analysis of the DNA inside the sperm head to and they get you get like a uh, a percentage like the you get like a percentage of fragmentation and the lower the percentage, the better. So um, that's sort of how that process, you submit a sperm sample and they like send it through like a flow cytometer and they're able to like see how tightly bound it is and how much fragmentation there is. Okay. Um, can we talk about vasectomies too? Various ways to extract sperm, no way to test sperm. I think it's asking whether or not oh yeah for vasectomies yeah yeah so you know right like if you've had a vasectomy we don't know the quality of the sperm because you're not ejaculating it um and the two sort of options are to do a vasectomy reversal versus a uh sperm extraction and there's a couple different ways to do sperm extraction if you are in this position i would highly recommend uh what we call a micro tessie or a microscopic testicular sperm extraction um and that's where the surgeon has loops. They are looking through the uh, seminiferous tubules where the sperm are to see which ones look sort of plump and healthy and which ones look, you know, atrophied and small. And they're removing the ones that look healthy under the microscope as opposed to just like ch- like cutting out a chunk of sperm testicle and sending it off to see if there's sperm we get much better chances of success so you really if you're in the situation where you need a tessie want to be asking you know technique of are you doing a micro tessie or just a tessie mm-hmm. so there's no if someone says just a tessie find another doctor because <laughs> <laughs> if you're having someone cut on your testicles you want to make sure that that doesn't happen more than once <laughs> yes yes um is DNA fragmentation test recommended if we keep getting abnormal embryos? Well, so that's a good question. And, you know, in that situation, the question is, is, is it coming from the egg or the sperm? Mm-hmm. And almost, you know, like 95 percent of the time it's an egg issue. 90 to 95 percent of the time it's an egg issue. So, um, you know, I think that that is where, you know, that particular situation, you'd have to talk with your provider and see what they think. Um, Sometimes doing SNP array instead of next gen sequencing can tell you if it came from the egg or the sperm. And um, and that can be helpful into determining sort of where to to look but almost all the time when you have abnormal eggs abnormal embryos it's a, it's an egg issue even if you're a younger person like if let's say you're in your early 30s would you still yeah oh, okay. i do i think so okay. i mean not always not i mean mm-hmm. it's not an absolute of course. but yeah. i would say at least 90 to 95% of embryos are abnormal mm-hmm. because of an egg issue um can painless varicoceles be an issue what about low t treating without affecting fertility um, so there's sort of two questions there. So mm-hmm. varicoceles, uh, like I said, increase blood flow to the testicles so they can affect sperm. So even if they're not painful, um, they they certainly can affect sperm quality. Now, insurance often will only 
cover fixing it if it's painful. So sometimes people have to think really hard about whether it's painful when they're seeing their doctor uh, to make sure that insurance might cover that. Right. You want to tell your doctor the truth, but if there's any pain whatsoever, then insurance will probably cover it as opposed to, you know, if there's no fertility coverage, then if it's only for fertility, it may not get covered. Um, In terms of um, the second half of that question, um, which was, well, you, sorry, will you say the question again? This, yeah, OT, low, that's right, yeah, yeah, yes. Um, so yeah, so, so medicines like Clomid, uh, anastrozole, uh, those are medications, oral medications that often can be very helpful in terms of boosting testosterone and bursting, boosting sperm production without, uh, hurting infertility. Okay. Wonderful. Um, vitamin E costs versus benefit for late forties husband if naturally trying to conceive or timed letrozole. I mean, I don't think there's a ton of data about men and vitamin E. <laughs> I think CoQ10 and a multivitamin are all he really needs. Um, what are good sperm ranges for men in their late forties? So we like to see volume of it, it should be the same as younger men. So 1.5 to 5 milliliters of fluid, we like to see above, I like to see above 15 million per milliliter, above 40% modal, and depending on the um, type of morphology, about 4% or ideally 14% uh, morphology. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, How often should we be checking sperm if recurrent pregnancy loss makes trying to conceive process longer? Once a year. Okay. All right. Because, um... The recurrent pregnancy loss, too, I guess, uh, even if, you know, your uterus is okay and all that stuff, then you don't expect sperm to make any big changes unless you've made big changes in your lifestyle, correct? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's always things that can come up. So I usually will recommend, you know, like sometimes people will have a baby or take a break from treatment and come back and see me. And usually about every 12 to 15 months, I'll repeat it. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, there's a new Stanford study about metformin for men and impacts on birth defects. What are your thoughts? Should it be discontinued? I don't know if we have enough data to, you know, metformin for men, of course, is used for diabetes. It's a great diabetes medication. Um, I'm not sure if we have enough data out of one study to make any, um, major changes. So I I think that's sort of TBD. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, when you're looking at a study too, um, you want to consider, um, the sample size as well, correct? Sample size, how the study was done, was it a prospective trial or a retrospective trial? A lot of those birth defect studies are like, you know, they take babies who are with birth defects and then they go back to see what, what their parent, what medicines their parents were taking, right? Like they're not necessarily always the best setup, um, Studies, So I'd have to look at that one particularly and sort of do an analysis, which I don't have in front of me. But, um, you know, I think we just need to be careful about, like, seeing a headline and and thinking it's it's truth, you know. Well, there's that new one out (laughs) that's causing a big stir about uh, the mosaic embryos and everything. You know, what I will say is, you know, um, uh, journalists and writers are out there to sell. Right. They're out there to sell papers Mm -hmm. and sell magazines and sell. And I think that when you have an article that gets some controversy, that is like the very best thing they could hope for. Right. Um, So do I think that the yeah, we could do a whole podcast on just that. But yes, I think that. um, So what we're talking (laughs) about is The New York Times had an article about um, saying that like 
genetically abnormal embryos can can make healthy babies and like this is something that we all know anybody doing IVF with genetic testing your physician should tell you it is not a hundred percent there is the potential for a false positive or false negative um, because we're not taking a biopsy of the inner cell mass that becomes the baby we're taking a biopsy of the the trophectoderm which is the placenta and so this is like not new it's it, you know um, the question is is like who should be doing genetic testing on their embryos and what are the implications and that's something your physician really needs to talk to you about what are the risks and what are the benefits for you yeah it's like basically not all published studies are gospel (laughs) like you have to look dig deeper and it doesn't necessarily mean that is the end-all be-all if there's one study about something right um yes um okay last question advice for couples who just found out Uh, a sperm donor is their only option? Well, I think that is typically difficult. And I think most couples that need, you know, who found out they need either egg donor, sperm donor, gestational care, any of those things. Uh, But in this situation, a sperm donor need to spend some time processing uh, that information and grieving, right? You have to grieve the loss of the biological child. I think that, you know, um, the sperm is one cell and uh, donating one cell does not make somebody a father or not, right? Um, the rest of that baby needs to develop, and being a parent is not necessarily at all related to DNA. Um, being a family doesn't have anything to do with the genetic relationship. So I think that um, it, it takes some emotional processing to sort of uh you know, face that. But most of the couples do. It can take some time and then they come back to treatment and have the families they want to have. And, you know, they leave their journey with a baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is the ultimate goal for most of right? us. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's wonderful that your practice has um, available oh, support, yeah. like social workers and stuff like that. Not every practice does. So when you have immediate access to that, I think that's really great too. Oh, absolutely. So do you, in your practice, work with patients outside of Illinois? Do you take patients outside of Illinois? Yes, absolutely. So I, I actually see patients from all over the place, all over the world, really. Um, and a lot of my patients will do like monitoring where they are. So, you know, wherever they are, we'll do ultrasounds and blood work. And then they just come in to do treatment for whatever the IVF or embryo transfers or whatever it is, uh, they'll sort of come into town. And the nice thing about Chicago is that pretty much everyone everywhere can get to O'Hare on a direct flight. So, um, you know, I think that uh, I take care of patients. It's it's actually kind of fun to um, look at my day and see where all the patients are coming from. Yeah, no, that's great. And so if people want to work with you, how do they get in contact with you? How do they connect with you? All that good stuff. Sure. So you can go to my, if you know, if you want to become a patient, you would go to my website, which is um, www.fcionline.com. And you can either call or submit a web form to set up a new patient appointment, uh, obviously either in person or over or over telemedicine. And then obviously my social media handles are at dr. So Allison dot rogers it's a l l i s o n dot r o d g e r s yeah and tiktok too is that your tiktok handle yes okay 
Mm-hmm. All right, perfect. Yeah, they should go watch your videos. It's wonderful. And, and if they have children, they should have, or at least teens, they should watch your videos too. I'm actually, yeah, I'm working on a lot of cool projects. I'm, uh, I'm uh, just finished writing a book. Oh my gosh! Coming out beginning of 2023. So all kinds of exciting, fun stuff. Yeah. Can, can we talk about the book a little bit or no? Oh, Are you allowed I'm to not say anything? Yet. Um, okay. It, okay. It's in process, but maybe um, it would be good to, you can, you know, maybe we'll touch base again. Uh, yes. But it's yes. supposed to be coming out uh, quarter one of 2023. So, yes, writing's done, just all the editing stuff now, which is super fun. Which, which genre is it in? It is for like like teens and preteens. It's it's oh, more of a okay. puberty and uh, period kind of book <gasps> as opposed to a fertility book. So oh my yeah, gosh. very excited. It should be great. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Please, please do come back and talk about that because I think that's yes. super important. I mean, I know the majority of my listeners are like thirty five to forty five, but I mean, this is like super important stuff that we all probably should have heard about when we were younger. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, we'll sort of talk about it next time we talk maybe, but I'm just excited about being able to, you know, I think when we, we were taught puberty as small, you know, teens or preteens, I think things were done in a very different way. And I think that this generation of, um, youth really deserve a inclusive and, uh, encompassing, uh, education. So. Yeah, I, I think the other issue also is that we're taught that getting pregnant is like super easy. Like you could just yeah. walk by someone and then you get pregnant. You don't realize that there's this like five day window <laughs> that right? it can only happen in. And we spend so much time talking about how not to get pregnant because of all the effects that can come from, you know, um, socially that can come from getting pregnant too soon or too young or anything like that. But I think that in, in doing that, and this is totally personal opinion, but in doing that, I think we miss out on a much bigger conversation about our bodies that we should all know about. I mean, either way, whether you have, you know, ovaries or not, um, I think that we just we didn't have so many other conversations I think probably would be would have been beneficial I mean I think even sorry I know I'm let me just climb on my soapbox um but like I feel like even when we talk about things like endometriosis and maybe that's why it takes so long for us to get diagnosed is because we don't know much about it and then we also are like dismissing our own pain it's like oh this is just a normal menstrual cycle this is what just people feel like and then we get dismissed and then we dismiss ourselves. And I think that it, it long term gets takes longer for us to get diagnosed in general. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's just my own thought. So we'll, you'll have to come back and um, <laughs> we can talk more if you're yes. open to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful that you made time for us today to talk about this. I think it's super important. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm honored. Um, hopefully we'll make time for you to come back and then we can talk about the book when it's time. And then um, any other stuff you want to talk about you have like an open invitation so come on whenever you want <laughs> uh, thanks I'll be back for sure Yay! so thank you so much again and um, we'll talk soon and we can't wait to hear about the book alright take care bye thanks bye I want to thank you for tuning in today I hope you found today's episode helpful if you want a question or topic covered in future episodes please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile 
Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes, and I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.